0: It's good to be together on this Lord's Day. I want to thank you for choosing to be here. If you're visiting, I want to again extend a special uh, welcome to you, let you know how blessed we are to have you here with us today. appreciate Callan uh, including me in his prayer. And I am extremely excited to uh, exalt and exalt in Christ as we worship the Word, as we study the Word that became flesh and dwelt among us, as we see and savor and behold the glories of the one who... It's the only begotten of the Father who's full of grace and truth, and there's perhaps no other passage more appropriate to help us do that this morning than the one we've selected to study from Colossians chapter 1. In fact, the book of Colossians is often considered the most Christ-exalting epistle in the entire New Testament. It's very similar to the book of Ephesians, likely because it was written by the same author, ultimately inspired by God, but Uh, very likely dispatched at the very same time because both letters are carried by a man of the name of Tychicus. And so the context or the circumstance of the the, the place of the writing, Paul's in prison in Rome, and a man of the name of Epaphras has visited from Colossians. Likely, uh, Epaphras was uh, the one or very heavily involved in starting the church at Colossae, and he goes to Rome and he uh, gives a report. On what's going on at Colossae. There were good things to report, there were bad things to report, and it seems evident that the church of Colossae was being threatened by those who were teaching that Christ was not enough. Because this entire epistle emphasizes the supremacy and the sufficiency of Jesus Christ. False teachers aren't teaching good news, aren't teaching gospel, they're teaching fake news. They're teaching false doctrine about who Jesus Christ is. They're teaching that Jesus isn't God, therefore He's not supreme and not sufficient for salvation. That in addition to Christ, you need to worship angels or have special visions or knowledge or revelations beyond what you can know and what you can find in Christ. And so we see the key key words, uh, knowledge, wisdom, understanding. Paul's confronting the doctrines and teachings that would become known as Gnosticism. And we've studied Gnosticism previously in our series on 1 John. So much of the context of John's writing there is dealing with Gnosticism. From the Greek Gnosis, knowledge, they were claiming a superior knowledge that you had to be initiated into. And the superior knowledge they claimed to have was that the matter it uh, was pure evil, spirit was good, and therefore some of the many implications from that Greek mysticism and merging of different ideas was that God could not become man, could not become matter. They denied the deity and the humanity of Christ. They denied that Jesus was Christ and that Christ was Jesus. And so the ultimate thesis of this book is if you have Christ, you have everything you need. Not Christ plus Christ, period. Christ plus nothing equals everything. You don't need anything beyond or in addition to Christ to be complete, to be perfect. All the riches of the full assurance of understanding, not some, all the riches are in Christ. All the fullness of the Godhead dwells in Christ, not some, all. He is the head of everything. All the growth and nourishment is Christ. Our life, our hope is Christ. Our knowledge and wisdom is Christ. All growth and perfection and maturation is Christ. All the fullness of God is Christ. Paul's prayed for them in chapter 1. We studied that last time as we've been studying the prayers of Paul. And I got stuck. That's maybe a bad word to use. I got mesmerized. I got entranced by this Christ's exalting text, I couldn't move on. He's prayed for them. He thanks God for the salvation they enjoy. And then he goes right into this exposition on the one who has saved us and delivered us from darkness and translated, transferred us into the kingdom of his son. And every one of these qualities is exclusive. Colossians 1, beginning in verse 15. For in Him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through Him to reconcile to Himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of His cross. All these qualities are true of Christ and nobody else. And the summation is verse 18. The heart of this text, of this book, is that in all things Christ is preeminent. He's first place. No one else is the image of the invisible God. No one else is the firstborn of all creation, the firstborn from the dead. No one else is the creator of all things in heaven and earth, visible and invisible. No one else created and is above all thrones and powers and authorities. No one else is before all things. No one else sustains all things. No one else is the head of the body, His church. No one else is the fullness of God. These qualities are absolutely exclusive and emphasize Jesus is infinitely and utterly unique. He is infinitely and utterly supreme and sufficient. This is one of the most majestic descriptions and exaltations of Christ in the entire Bible. It's somewhat of a poem, exalting Christ. It's worth memorizing. It's worth meditating upon. And again, Paul's prayer for the Colossians and for us leads into this poem. Paul prays that we would be strengthened with all power according to His glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy. But how in the world can we be grateful and joyful in the face of adversity, in the face of having to the prospect of patiently enduring? Because God, the Father, has qualified us, has given us an inheritance. He's delivered us from darkness. He's transferred us in the kingdom of His Son. He has redeemed us. He has forgiven us. That's how. We have an inheritance in the eternal kingdom of God, an eternal light, not outer darkness, in a place where night will be no more, where there will be no need of sun and moon and stars, for the glory of God gives its light. The light is the Lamb. We can endure with joyful and grateful hearts anything and everything that comes our way that stands before us because He has qualified us to an eternity in light, not darkness. That's how. That's why. And He's done that by paying our redemption, by giving us complete forgiveness through the blood of His Son. Paul knows that our patient, joyful, thankful endurance is predicated upon the greatness of Christ the supremacy and the sufficiency of Christ. If we have faith in the supremacy and the sufficiency of Christ, we will endure with joy and gratitude. And so if your faith wavers, if your heart becomes cold or discouraged, meditate on, focus on the glories of Christ. That's the antidote. That's the solution he gives. It's like he's saying after verses 12 through 14, do you you realize who did this for you? The one who gives us this great deliverance, who has delivered us from darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of light, is preeminent. He's able. He is more than able. That's the immediate goal of this passage to show that in everything, Christ is supreme, Christ is sufficient, Christ is preeminent. He is supreme, He is preeminent over all creation. He is the image of the invisible God. God is a spirit. No man can see God and live. Jesus is God and he puts God on display in a visible way. He made God visible. He made God manifested through the incarnation. So look at his life. Look at his attitudes, his actions, the way he treated people, his view on life and death and religion and salvation and children and marriage and family, etc., etc., etc. And you see how God views those things. Philip asked Jesus in John 14, Show us the Father and it sufficeth us. And Jesus said, Have have I been so long with you, Philip, and you asked to see the Father? Whoever has seen the Son has seen the Father. He puts God on display in a visible way. Notice the prepositions, by him, through him, for him. Notice the alls. All creation, all things, all things, all things, all things, all the fullness, all things. He is supreme over everything. What's not included in that? Supreme over the galaxies, over the entire universe. The earth orbits on the sun some 93 million miles from the sun. The sun is so large that over 1 million earths could fit inside of it, yet the sun is just a moderately sized star. The largest star could hold one billion suns and three quadrillion Earths. That's how big it is. Think about our Milky Way galaxy, just our galaxy. Estimated to be 100,000 light years in diameter. That's traveling at the speed of light, how long it would take to travel across it. Yet it's just a moderately sized galaxy in the universe containing, again, an estimated, we don't know, it's bigger than we can even fathom, two trillion galaxies. Some estimate the universe is 93 billion light years in diameter. To illustrate how big our universe is, think about uh, it in relation to our solar system, just our solar system. Suppose this quarter represents our solar system and specks of dust on this quarter represents the planets. Our solar system and its vastness compared to the entire universe would be like this quarter compared to the United States of America. That's how big the universe is. There are billions of stars in our galaxy. The Bible says you can't count them. That's true. The average distance between those stars is thirty trillion miles. The space shuttle travels at five miles per second. At that speed, it would take over two hundred thousand years to travel the distance between one star and another star at thirty trillion miles. And the size of creation should cause us to think about and be in awe of and amazed by the size of the one who created it all, Jesus Christ, who is over not only the entire universe, but our own little world. To The top of Mount Everest, some 30,000 feet high to the depths of the Mariana Trench, over 30,000 feet deep. Over plants and animals and insects and these wonderful creatures God's created. Over the weather and its power and its might and its beauty. Over countries and governments and armies. That's the, one of the takeaways from Nebuchadnezzar's dream in Daniel chapter 2. He's the head of gold. And then the Medo-Persian Empire and the Greek Empire and the Roman Empire in the days of those kings or Caesars. This stone not made with hands, the eternal kingdom of God consume all nations because all these world powers are mortal are temporary God's kingdom is eternal it's infinite he's above all of it he is the firstborn of all creation what does that mean to our ears 2000 years later that can sound like he was created he was the firstborn the first created groups like the jehovah's witnesses teach that heresy Firstborn of all creation does not mean he's part of creation. I want to give you some reasons why that's evident. In this very text, in this very book, he's emphasized that Jesus is God. In him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. He's creator, not creation. That's emphasized throughout this book and throughout the Bible. Notice in this text, he is the firstborn of all creation for, because by him all things were created. That makes no sense. If he's part of creation, to say that he is part of creation because he created all things. The word of here in the Greek and in English can have multiple meanings. For example, Sam is the coach of his son's little league team does not mean that Sam plays on that little league team. Coach of means coach over. That's the sense in which Paul describes Jesus here. He is over all creation. The word firstborn in the Greek and in and historically at times to not always mean chronologically, but the privileges that were associated with being the firstborn. Preeminence, priority and preeminence. Supremacy, not always sequence. Having the highest rank. For example, Psalm 89 describes David as the firstborn, even though he was not the first king. He wasn't even the firstborn in his own family, and yet he's described as the firstborn. Specially honored. First in rank and importance. Joseph had two sons. Ephraim was the second born chronologically, and yet he's called the firstborn. Exodus speaks of the children of Israel as the firstborn, even though they certainly were not the first nation. Supremacy, preeminence, not chronologically. Christ is before all. He's uncreated, therefore he's eternal. If he's uncreated and eternal, he's God. Go back as far as you want. Go back as far as you can. You can't get before Christ. He's the only one who lived before He was conceived, before He was born. You know, we like to think of ourselves as creators, but we're really not. Not in the way Christ is. When we create, we just rearrange what He created. But when He created, He didn't rearrange anything. There was nothing there. He was before all things. There was nothing there to rearrange. He created it all from nothing. And not only is He before all things, He upholds all things. He sustains all things. He's not just creator. He is sustainer. He didn't just wind up the clock and walk away as deism taught, this impersonal God. If he had done that, the universe would have exploded. Hebrews 1, verse 3, "...who being the brightness of his glory, the express image of his person, and upholding all things by the word of his power." When he had by himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, every second of every day, we depend on him not only as creator, but as our sustainer. Even those who refuse to believe and acknowledge him depend upon Christ every second of every day. The earth is exactly the right distance from the sun. It's exactly the right distance from the moon. It has exactly the right atmospheric pressure, exactly the right amount of oceanic water. It has exactly the right amount of tilt. It's exactly the right weight and mass and so on and so on. We we live on a razor's edge that Christ sustains for life as we know it. To illustrate how precise he sustains us, the earth deviates from a straight line by one-ninth, that type of precision, one-ninth of an inch every 18 miles in its orbit. In January, when it's closest to to the sun, it slows down. In July, when it's farthest from the sun, it speeds up. How does it know to do that? The universe is so fine-tuned that eclipses and planetary movements and other astronomical phenomena can be predicted centuries in advance. That's how well he sustains everything. Everything that exists in material form consists of atoms. And Going back to science class, the, the nucleus of an atom consists of positively charged protons, Neutrally charged neutrons, outside of that are negatively charged electrons. Why, if you have electrically charged protons shooting around, aren't they blasted out? What holds the nucleus together? That's the question. The ratio of the mass of an electron to a proton is 1 to 1,836. That means a proton is 1,836 times larger, more massive than an electron. And yet, with that great size difference, the Electrical charge is the same. Scientists suggest that the electrical charge of an electron were altered by one part in 100 billion. That precise, one part divided by 100 billion, our bodies would instantly explode. That's how well he sustains us. Nuclear scientists in the in the 30s, decades ago, uh, said there's this, there's this law, there's this force seeking to destroy the atom from within, this repulsion. And yet, Interestingly enough, there's another force working to overcome that to hold everything together. They often refer to it as nuclear glue or Colossus. They were close, Colossians 1.17. In him, all things hold together. And so when you get down to the most basic part of life as we know it, of science, there's a problem because you have two laws Two conflicting laws present in the atom. One law trying to destroy it, the other law overriding it to hold everything together. And the reason mountains and oceans and plants and planets and humans continue to exist and don't fly apart is because Christ is holding it all together. The chair you're sitting on. The clothes you're wearing, the body you're possessing, the food you eat, the air you breathe. These laws of nature aren't really laws of nature. Nature just describes what we observe, what we see. They don't describe the force behind it. The force behind it is God, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And that's why the heavens, the creation declares the glory of God. And so there's this temptation, I think, as we live in an age of science, The fundamental sin from the very beginning has always been this tendency to worship what was created, the creature rather than the creator, Romans chapter 1. The fundamental sin is idolatry, to worship the people, places, and things that have been created instead of worshiping the one who created them. He's supreme over creation. He's also preeminent over all authority. Again, the relevance of this text, of this book. We live in an age of no authority, a generation denying absolutes. Nothing is sacred anymore. Man is his own authority. Man is his own God. Jesus is just another guru or liar or lunatic, not Lord. His word is not absolute. In an age like this with no absolutes, we really need to define and appreciate who Jesus Christ is. Colossians does that. He is the head of all rule and authority over all dominion, all thrones, all rulers, all authorities. All things are created through him and for him. He has absolute authority because He is the absolute truth. He is the head over all authorities. He created them to make His glories known. And notice, it doesn't say He created them evil. Certainly there are evil powers and good powers. The Bible talks about He created them good, they rebelled. Sounds familiar. The angels who did not keep their proper domain but left their own abode. And the head over all of it, the head over all authority is the head of the church. This is the one who fills us and oh how full we are. If the Roman Empire looks big to you, Colossians, if the enemies of Christ look big to you, Christians, Christ is bigger. The one who created them is bigger. When we feel insecure and insignificant and threatened and small and vulnerable and weak, Christ is still in control. And these truths make it Abundantly clear, Christ is the only one worthy of our worship. He disarmed. He created all authorities and He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to an open shame by triumphing over them and Him. By His cross. Christ rules over them as the one who stripped them. He stripped those who stripped Him at the cross. Exhaust all your ammunition on Christ and He will disarm you in the process. You're kicking against the pricks, Paul found out. Who are you, Lord? He found out who the Lord is. Over the worldly rulers and authorities that stripped Jesus, Pilate and Caiaphas and the Sanhedrin. Over the evil authorities, often seems to be referring to the the cosmic powers, the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. The demonic powers that drove Pilate and the Jews to execute Jesus. How did he strip them? How did he disarm them and triumph over them? By taking away the one damning weapon Satan had against God's people, sin. Sin. Revelation 12, verse 10, And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation, the power, and the kingdom of our God and the authority of His Christ have come for the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down who accuses them day and night before our God. Christ's blood cleanses and forgives us of all unrighteousness, all sin, 1 John 1. And the result is God's enemies, Satan and his minions, have no ground, no basis to accuse us anymore. Romans 8, there is therefore now no condemnation of those who are Christ. And the controversy is, the question in Romans, how can God be just and the justifier of evil, wicked people like you and me? How is that just? How can God overlook sin? How can it go unpunished? The answer is, it wasn't. It wasn't overlooked. He condemned our sin in his flesh. And he goes on to say, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Take heart. Find comfort and confidence and courage. Who shall bring a charge against God's elect because there's nothing to charge me with? It is God who justifies. Who is he who condemns? Because there's nothing to condemn me with? Because Christ died, rose, is seated at God's right hand and makes intercession for us. That's why. There's no condemnation to those who are in Christ. He disarmed it. He disarmed Satan. Because of his work on the cross, we've been delivered not only from the dominion of sin, but sinning. The bondage not only of sin, but sinning, which is the worst bondage of all. 1 John 3, verse 8, the reason the Son of God appeared, the reason for the incarnation was to destroy the works of the devil. And the works of the devil tempt us into sinning. Sinning. 1 Peter two twenty four. He Himself bore our sins in His body on the tree, that, here's the reason, we might die to sin and live to righteousness by His wounds, ye have been healed. He's also disarmed and stripped the power of Satan and the authorities to, to use the fear of death against us. Hebrews 2, 14 and 15, And As much then as the children have partaken of the flesh and blood, He Himself likewise shared in the same, that through death He might destroy him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and release those who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. 1 Corinthians 15, this wonderful chapter on the resurrection of Christ and all that it means to us. The sting of death is sin and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. The terrifying force of death, the sting of death is sin and it's been removed. We don't have to fear a death that leads to eternal condemnation and outer darkness. Because Christ won. Christ won. And in these ways, his work on the cross stripped and shamed and defeated Satan and the authority. Stripped the accusations and the condemnation. Stripped the power of the fear of death. Stripped the dominion and the power of sin and sinning. He is the head of and preeminent over all creation. He's preeminent over all authority. And he's preeminent over the church. His body, he is the head of the body of the church. Head is is denoting a a place of preeminence. Anything without a head is dead. Anything with more than one head is a monster. There is only one head of the church of Christ. It's Christ. There's no head on earth. No pope or anybody else claiming to be the head of the church is wrong. It's something else. And again, this is a relevant message for us in an age where people are compromising doctrine in the name of unity. And the question is, can you have true unity without true doctrine? Can we merge everything together, this syncretism and relativism and pluralism and universalism that's so common and prevalent that creates a body without a head or a body with multiple heads? You know, it doesn't matter what a church is doing and accomplishing if Christ isn't doing it. If Christ isn't head over it. it, doesn't matter how full our building is or our offering plates are, how popular our programs are, how many fans we accumulate if they're not followers, how much unity we have if we are united in sin. If our doctrine, our worship, our work, our very name isn't of Christ, we cease to be the church belonging to Christ. We become the church that belongs to something else. He is the head of the church. He is the source, not holding fast to the head, from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with the growth that is from God. The source of all sustaining, nourishment, the holding together, not only physically in the universe, but spiritually, but in His church, He holds together, He sustains all of it. All the growth, all the nourishment is Christ. The growth of the body is related to the power provided by your head. Think about physically at the base of your skulls, the pituitary gland that carries the growth hormone. And being the body of Christ has significant, distinct behavioral implications. Colossians chapter 3. That's the takeaway. That's the application. Colossians 3.15, And let the peace of God rule in your hearts, to which also you were called in one body, and be thankful. Christ created all things... For Christ, to put Christ on display, by him, through him, for him. And that doesn't mean to meet his needs because he has on the Acts 17, that sermon. He he needed anything. Creation exists to put his preeminence on display, his beauty, his greatness, his value, his power. All of it on display. That in all things he might be preeminent. So is it for him or for us? Yes. Because when people see and savor the value of Christ, when they treasure him as supreme and sufficient above all things, he is glorified. He is glorified and we are blessed. He's not an egomaniac because the glory he gets is tied to the grace that he gives. The glory of being the head of the church, the body by which all can receive salvation and reconciliation to God to supply every need that we have. The glory of being the one to rise from the dead, defeating sin and death for us. Giving us newness of life, everlasting life. Freeing us from the bondage of sin and the, the, the bondage of the fear of death. The glory of the one who shed his blood on a cross to make peace between us and God. To redeem us, to reconcile us, to forgive us. That's not egomania, that's love. And Paul writes in another beautiful text in Philippians chapter 2. Have this mind in you. Put on the mind of Christ, which also in Christ Jesus. Put on this mentality, this mindset. Who, existing in the form of God, counted not that being on an equality with God, a thing to be grasped. What does this mean? What does form of God mean? The word there means essence, nature, the very core. He's God. Being is in the present active tense. It means he's always been and continues to be God. He never stopped being God, even when he became a man. And in all of that greatness, all of that beauty, all of that power, all of that Preeminence. What did he do with it? He emptied himself. He emptied himself. How does form of God relate to equality with God and thing to be grasped? Is he reaching for something he doesn't have because he's not God or not holding on too tight to something he's always had? The very next word, emptied himself, one word in the Greek, gives us the answer. You don't empty yourself of something you don't have. He didn't hold on too tightly to the privileges He has and always has as God. He emptied Himself of what stood between Him and the cross. That's the message. He let go of power and position and privilege and prestige to position Himself with us and becoming a man, embracing vulnerability and humility. The decision wasn't to empty Himself of deity or to stop being divine. The decision was An incarnation of what it really means to be great. Of what it really means to be God. Wherefore, therefore, the result, God has highly exalted him, given him a name above all names, that at the name of Jesus every knee shall bow, things in heaven or on earth or under the earth, that eventually, ultimately, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord the glory of God the Father. You know, we admire Christ for his transcendence. We're in awe of his preeminence. which is It's mixed with humility and submission. Paul used one word in Philippians 2 to describe his life. To sum up his life from the incarnation of the crucifixion, obedient. Obedient. Justice with mercy and grace. Majesty with meekness. He stumped the scribes and the Pharisees with his transcendent knowledge and wisdom. And yet he was humble enough to be loved by the simple, to be loved by children. He could calm the storm and walk on water, yet he didn't call down fire and lightning from heaven when they mocked him and scourged him and said, come down from the cross. We are weary and heavy laden and he is meek and lowly to help us and serve us and wash our feet because he is a lion-like lamb. A lion is admired for its imperial majesty, for its strength. In appearance, a lamb for its meekness and its gentleness. We love him because he is the lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. And we respect and reverence him for his preeminence, his greatness as the Lion of Judah. The brilliance of his glory is amplified as the Lion and Lamb come together to show and display and manifest all types of unique and diverse excellencies in Christ. to reconcile us to Himself. Notice, uh, reconciliation means to bring something that's separated back together. Reconcile us to what? Not the fond creation. That's not the gift. The creation, the gift that we get, what He reconciles us to is Himself. That's what we need. That's what He restores us to. That's our ultimate satisfaction we find in Christ. In Christ, we enjoy all the fullness of God that's contained within His body. We get a taste and we experience the fullness of God in Christ. All that makes God supremely happy and satisfied is in Christ, in Christ alone. And He made peace between us and God by the blood of His cross. Colossians 1 21, and you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, that's why we needed reconciliation because we rebelled and we dishonored the one we were created, like all of creation, to glorify. And put on display. And he made peace through the body of his flesh, dealing with that Gnostic heresy by his death, in order to present you holy and blameless in a brother. He made peace not by killing his enemies. That's what he, he had every right to do that. That's one way to make peace. But by killing himself. But for dying, by dying for us. He is the firstborn from the dead. And that's not because He was the first to be raised, chronologically, because His resurrection is preeminent. He was the only one to be raised, never to die again. With immortal body. He is supreme over death. He is supreme because He rose from the dead, conquering sin and death for us. He lives and He reigns. And he is not a dead hero. He lives and He reigns at God's right hand, living to make intercession. And He is the one by which all will rise on the last day. He is the premier one because he is the image of the invisible God. He is the premier one because he created all things, including all authorities, visible and invisible. He is the premier one because he is eternal. He is before all things, and in him all things consist are sustained. He is the premier one because he created. He is the source. He is the head of the church. He is the premier one because he rose from the dead, defeating sin and death for us, providing what no one else could, complete forgiveness, complete atonement complete salvation and satisfaction in Christ. And we are in a safe place in the kingdom of God in the body of Christ because of how great, how preeminent, how supreme our head is, our Savior is. And as we offer an invitation this morning, if you need to put Christ first, we'd encourage you to do that. Make him the King of kings and Lord of lords. Become a Christian. Colossians 2, be buried with him in baptism. Have faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead to raise you in newness of life. Maybe you're here as a Christian, you need to renew that commitment. to Put Christ first above everything and everyone else. You know, I think sometimes the problem is not that Christ is insignificant in our life. Now, I think certainly there are times in our life that that's the case. We think about all the antonyms to preeminent, minor, secondary, subordinate, to our wishes, our desires, and our time, our talent, our treasure, and how we spend those things, our budgets, our schedules. Sometimes he's insignificant. I think sometimes in those things, in our worship, our work, our doctrine, our activity, the problem is not that he's insignificant. We come to church. The problem is he's prominent, but he's not preeminent. And there's a significant difference. And so the takeaway for us is we take stock of the past year, as we balance the budget, we make plans and goals for the next year. Is Christ prominent or is Christ preeminent in your life? And if you need to make him preeminent this morning, do you have enough faith to respond to his invitation? Will you come as we stand and sing?